This is a HeadGum Podcast. Craig. Andrew. <laughs> I was expecting you to, to be there for me. I was here listening. Craig, long after all the retail businesses close and the rest of the world ends, you know it's still going to be around the internet. Oh, I hope so. And in preparation for that very likely scenario, you need to make a website and we think you should do it with Squarespace. Squarespace gives you a a place to showcase your work, blog or publish content, sell products and services of all kinds, promote your online business or your, I guess, a museum to your physical business, (laughs) and announce an upcoming event or special project and more. They give you beautiful templates created by world-class designers, analytics that help you grow in real time, built-in search engine optimization, and nothing to patch or upgrade ever. They also give you 24-7 award-winning customer support. When I, I don't use customer support often, but when I do, I do need it to have won an award from somebody. It is helpful when I, when Mm. I make the request to know that on the other side, someone is holding an award, (laughs) holding a trophy while they help me with my website. (laughs) So if that sounds appealing to you, you should go to squarespace.com slash overdue for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code overdue to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash overdue. And uh, use the offer code OVERDUE to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Squarespace. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And we are getting into it this week. It's our podcast. Again? (laughs) What's the deal with our podcast? Explain it for the people who never listened before. Yes. So each week one of us reads a book and tells the other person about it. It is often a book, almost always a book that one of us has never read before. And you can use this podcast in place of reading it. No, you can use it to. <laughs> we, <laughs> we, if you like need to read a book for an assignment, please do not only listen to us. But if you are interested in speaking uh, passingly intelligently about a book at a you know a party at a socially distant cocktail party or a Zoom hangout, read the Cliff's Notes equivalent first. Yeah. And then listen to our thing and whatever weird like hobby horses we come out of it with, you can then adapt for your own. So it really sounds like you yes. read it for yourself because you can go deep on one or two extremely specific weird things. Uh-huh. That's good. <laughs> we get a surprising number of emails and reviews that are like, I don't have to read this book now because these guys talked about it. <laughs> and we, and we I don't... guess that, that the, the decision to do that is between you and your... Like creator deity. Yes. We will be talking about Roadside Picnic by Arcadian Boris Strugatsky. I just want to say our goal is not to absolve you from reading books. Our goal is to uncover why someone might be into a book and then decide for ourselves whether or not we're into it. That's usually Mm -hmm. the arc of each show. Mm-hmm. Um, this book, someone was into it. They are Heather, one of our Patreon supporters, uh, recommended this book to us. Uh, Heather said, my rec is Roadside Picnic by Boris Arnakey-Strugatsky. I'm currently in grad school studying Russian language and history. Not sure if Heather's still in grad school. If you graduated, congratulations. And I've noticed you guys haven't really dived into Russian literature yet. 
Roadside Picnic is a Soviet-era sci-fi book that has had a lot of influence on the genre, not to mention the video games, and kind of weirdly predicted a Chernobyl-like scenario before it happened. I read it in English, and my copy included an afterword by one of the authors discussing the hoops they had to jump through to get the book past the Soviet censors and into publication. Yeah. So, yeah, I read the, I believe, the 2012 English edition, somewhere around there, um, by Elena, the translations by Elena Bormashenko, mm-hmm. and it includes an afterword by Boris Strugatsky, who did pass away in 2012. I, I could be getting that publication date wrong. I apologize. Um, but the publication the, of the edition that you yes, read? Yes, of this edition. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the original um, Russian edition was, it was like written throughout 1971 and then published in 72 in like a series of magazines. So yes. it was one of those, those published in like serialized form. Uh, but then, yeah, because of Soviet censorship, it did not come out in that country in book form until like the 1980s. And even then, like through the eighties and nineties, the only versions of it that really existed in that country were still pretty heavily edited from the original though. Um, my understanding is that a Russian language version that they did approve of was published somewhere in the 1970s. I couldn't find where, but yes, yes. but not in the Soviet Union. No. Um, um, and, and yeah, since since then, it's been published in like 22 countries, very widely translated. Um, uh, Bormashenko is not the original translator of this into English, but she is the most recent translator. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and what? They are two brothers. Who... Two brother, two wild and crazy <laughs> brothers. Arkady was born in 1925 and died in 1991. Uh, Boris was born in 33 and died in 2012. And yeah, they published almost everything that they wrote, and they, they were fairly prolific as a as a duo. Yep. Um, they started publishing together, I believe, in 1958 with a book called From Beyond, and ending in 1990, um, they wrote you know novels, plays, uh, all kinds of stuff. And when they published separately, they only they each only published like two or three things a piece. Boris is published after Arcady died, mm, um, mm. and that th- that stuff always appeared under pseudonyms. So they, huh. their brands are very uh, interlinked, I guess. Sure, with each other. That seems like they would have to have a pretty like public falling out to like break up. Like they're pretty pot committed to their relationship. Like a tr- Chernobyl level fallout. Ooh. Um, I did see a note, you know, going along with the discussion of Soviet censorship. um, They were members of the Union of Soviet Writers, which was like a creative union of authors uh, that resulted in like a lot of party and state control of literature um, with membership being like effectively obligatory. Uh, And part I bring that up because... Um, in the afterword, Boris even mentions that despite all of the censorship this book faced, like it doesn't explicitly critique existing power structures. It like critiques power structures and it critiques society. But I was even like, I was, my brain was working overtime to try and like make this a critique of the Soviet Union, and it it doesn't quite one-to-one which i think is what yeah, has made see, that's, it endure that's the, a little bit that's the thing is that the censors don't have to like come up with a really yeah. good specific <laughs> reason good why point. they're censoring your thing that's a so good point that, no that's fair that's fair um and then they are um you said you had a little bit of, of research on this too but they this book doesn't 
appear in this like cinematic universe that they've created, the world of Noon. Yeah, the Noon, um, the, noon, the, noon the Noon universe. Um, a speculative but, uh, utopia. That was a like a a thing that started with just like reusing characters and settings, but then later became like more intentional. And I guess was you can sort of track how they were feeling about how the Soviet Union was doing through uh, <laughs> uh-huh. those books and throughout their work, where like it goes from de- being a little more idealized uh, to being a little more <laughs> more skeptical and critical. <laughs> Yeah, what it's like the premise is like communism in the ideal form has succeeded and technology has progressed to the point where people don't have to do manual labor and it can be kind of read as like an anarchistic meritocracy. Uh, But of course, that can't be perfect forever. (laughs) Like that Mm -hmm. seems like human nature is going to get in the way. Um, And what I found interesting about that is that there is a controversial occupation called the progressor who are people whose job it is to mess with quote unquote less advanced civilizations and attempt to like accelerate them, which is a a trope of sci-fi. But I also find it interesting that it's like it's identified as an occupation because that is a big part of uh, the way that this book identifies what are called stalkers um, in Mm -hmm. Roadside Picnic. Uh, Just that. I mean, in Star Trek, you're specifically not supposed to. Yeah, do that. It's the, You're not what? supposed to interfere it's with technology. The, um, the <laughs> yeah. first rule is what it's called, right? The prime directive. Oh, I was idiot. close. I was close. Uh, do you have anything on the adaptations of this book, Andrew, or of this? Um, like just a little influence? bit. Like it was. It has been adapted a whole bunch of times, especially if you count works that have just been influenced mm. by it. Um, like you'd said, uh, this came out before the Chernobyl thing happened in the in the late eighties. Um, but a lot of people have expressed surprise that it happened. I honestly, I before lied Chernobyl book. I said it was yeah. a Chernobyl book last week. I was wrong, and it's not. It came out like fifteen years before, but it but it, it deals with uh, people exploring these like formally cordoned off, extremely hazardous spaces, and like bringing stuff back from there. Yeah, but um, yeah. So it's it's wrapped up with Chernobyl a lot. Um, there was a there's a so there's a 1977 TV adaptation that was destroyed by censors after its only showing. Oh neat. There is a film in 1979 called Stalker that the brothers wrote the screenplay for. Yep. Um, there is a series of games called. Let me make sure I'm pronouncing this right. S T A L K E R. So, so stalker. I think you have to say the, but you have to say the letters. I don't think it's called stalker. Oh, are there periods? Yeah, there are periods. Okay. Do what um, do the letters stand for? Scavengers, trespassers, adventurers, loners, killers, explorers, and robbers. Whoa. <laughs> but yeah, the uh, the use of the word stalker in this book entered into Russian vernacular after this is sort of a like somebody who basically who does what I just described who goes into a <laughs> a cordoned off area yeah, and explores and uh, finds stuff Boris claims that they like created the Russian version of this word which is pronounced stulker uh he traces it back to a Rudyard Kipling novel where they kind of like must it's a reference to some character named like Stalky or something and they'd been <laughs> And it is like a ringleader of that some gang like of kids. That sounds like a weird mascot for yes. like a theme park around this book. <laughs> I'm Stalky the Stalker. Uh, and they kind of coined the term because they, you know, they needed. There was like the beginning of the afterward talks about them like writing out a bunch of notes for this 
world and this like event, this visit, which we'll get into. Um, and they don't actually use the word stalker until like pretty far into the like planning of this book because they weren't happy with any of the other words that they were coming up with. So they kind of mm-hmm. coined a term that would carry its own meaning. And yeah, it is taken on a life in this type of like go into the irradiated zone and reclaim things fiction, which yeah. is a, a whole genre and certainly is a good video game genre because you need to go to a place where there are obstacles and, you know, Mario has to go into the castle to get Princess Peach. Like, it's Tales all the time. I'm I'm thinking more like, okay, these people go and stalkers go into the into the exclusion zone and they are just beset by puzzles where you have to like shove boxes around <laughs> to like move forward. Also possible, yes. That's what that cuz it's just that is, that is what video games of the era were about. When you had puzzle solving elements in your action video game, it's always shoving boxes around That's for some true. reason. That's true. Um what was I going to say uh, oh, this you said exclusion zone, um, and that re-reminded me of the comparisons to the book, is it the book Annihilation, which also became the film, which we talked about a year or two ago. Uh, Christina came on to talk about it, and she like liked it fine. Um, is that one where we got? I think that's one where we got yelled at by a bunch of <laughs> Jeff Vandermeer fans. After. Yeah, but because that, I mean, that book very similar to this one has a zone that people go into, and it's kind of timey wimey in there, and it's like <laughs> there's stuff you can't describe or that you will have trouble describing, and it's of another world. Um, and so, if you liked Annihilation, you might like this book. Um, or if you liked this book, you might like that. They are of a piece together. Um, anything else, Andy, before I get into the thing or any other thoughts nah. on what? Okay, no. Nah. <laughs> um, like I said, I, I liked that the edition included this forward from Le Guin, um, who mentions that it's partially adapted from a 1977 review she wrote because she wanted to like have the contemporary response to the book included. Um she said it was more that like published at a time when quote morally interesting novels from Russia still had the glamour of risk taking courage to them, mm-hmm. um, and at a time when a positive review of a work of Soviet science fiction was a small but real political statement in the U.S. You know this came out during the is the seventies like the peak of the I guess the sixties is the peak of the Cold War, right? But the cold it's still in full swing. Like yeah. I I don't think it be, had become clear to anybody yet that what where it was gonna Soviet, go. Yeah, yeah. Government was sort of slowly collapsing over yeah. time. Um so she talks a little bit about like the US sci fi community adapting some of the rah rah American individualism and being kind of closed-minded towards, you know, Russian authors and things like that. And she says that the brothers write, quote, as if they are indifferent to ideology, um, which she says is is an interesting approach. Because, it, yeah, it doesn't map, as I said earlier, to, a, to an explicit critique of the Soviet or the, you know, capitalist system. Um, well, I guess if, you, if you're trying to avoid censorship... Yeah, and yeah. You didn't want and you didn't want it to be specifically like propaganda or anti-capitalist. You would try as hard as you could to make it seem non-ideological. Ideological. I don't know if that was 
part of their calculus in like the original version. It just um, seems so about. I'm sure it, it's part of it in the censored versions that came out later. Yeah, it just seems about slightly bigger questions, though I, I still think that there's some stuff about work and labor that are just interesting. Um, she And she also says that it is a first contact story, though it is not about war and it is not about communicating with the aliens either. Um, I'll get into that. And that it's use of quote-unquote, ordinary people, kind of just like working-class characters just going about their life in this heightened reality um, is noteworthy, certainly at the time, and I think overall is something in, like, sci-fi where we still, I don't know, you see a lot of, like, then this person's here to save the universe, or these are super smart scientists dealing with the aliens, um, and having it just be, like, someone who could just as easily like work any you know traditionally manual labor job just happened to be someone who is going in and out of this you know irradiated zone i saw an interesting um so a pat or a pat a p a t t from goodreads uh-huh. in a three star review so this is three star goodreads reviews um said uh this book reminds me of quote big dumb object sci-fi trope <laughs> where an alien artifact is found by humans but their owners are absent yeah uh, the main difference is that the objects in Roadside Picnic are little ones scattered all over the zones of visitation. Your average sci-fi BDOs are gigantic things floating in space. <laughs> so like finding mm. a, an abandoned space station or some kind of technology and then and then like not understanding it and having events ensue is a sort of specific sci-fi trope. That, yes, yes. Yeah. Usually that that ends with some sort of like Oh, and there's one scary alien left. Like, there's like some sort of that. I mean, that's a lot of what Alien is, and even what some of Prometheus is in the, in that movie franchise, uh, like exploring alien ruins and things. Um, but Alien always shows up. Uh, alien's <laughs> always there to eat your guts you have and an get alien. inside you um, and burst out of you. Uh, but. That's, yeah, I mean, that's not quite what's going on here. So let's get into it. Um, Yeah, please do. The book opens with an interview transcript, quote unquote, with uh, Dr. Valentine Pillman. He is a Nobel Prize winning researcher of the zones. He sounds like a kind of guy who would be real loose with the prescription pad. Yeah, a real pill man. Dr. Pillman. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And he won his prize for something called the Pillman Radiant, I think it is. Where, based on some research, which really is just like some elaborate, you know, spacefaring math that he did, um, the I think 13 years prior to this interview, uh, the world noticed six zones that just cropped up on Earth, uh, scattered across the globe. And inside those zones, all sorts of zany stuff happens, and people also die. Um, and the zones are on a curve on the earth as if a gun was firing at like a spinning basketball and like just the way that the bullets line up on the globe like on the on the basketball or like in yeah, a curve. No, I get it. yeah okay great you got it you made a face and then you got it um yeah <laughs> and he did the research uh actually he tries to credit his like graduate students and the interviewer who has a real like caesar flickman vibe going on 
um, he doesn't really buy it. But well, I mean, I don't, I don't buy it. Like, what doctor is going to give any credit to his grad students? That's a fair point. That's a fair point. He traces it to somewhere in the constellation Cygnus. Um, but other than that, swan one, I know that from Katamari. It looks like a swan, I think. Yeah, yeah, I know that from Katamari. Okay. Oh, sure. I didn't hear you say swan. My bad. Didn't mean to step on your knowledge. Um, yeah, come on, (laughs) honk. Uh, and. So they this is like a good way for the Arcadies to get some basic world building to the reader right away. We know that there are these six zones on Earth. We know that no one really witnessed the the day of their arrival. Uh, it just happened. All of a sudden, they were there. Um, okay. There are armies stationed to technically keep people from going in and out of them. Um, though, of course, there is a kind of Ill- illegal flow of goods out of these things. And we don't know what all of the things that people are finding do. Um, there is some technology around like unlimited energy batteries that they've started using to power cars and things. But it hasn't, you know, in Men in Black, where like they have all the fancy gadgets and they're like, mm-hmm. yeah, this is from all the aliens that keep showing up on our planet for some reason. Mm-hmm. Um, this the world of roadside picnic doesn't really have that going on. Um, it seems like the UN and other govern governing bodies have attempted to really limit the influence of the zones on the broader populace, which creates this weird relationship uh, between the people who live in these zones or near them and the rest of the world. Um, because it's like, we have this like, we don't know what it is near us. And the rest of the world is like, ah, I don't know. I've never seen it. It's just probably a thing that's over there. Mm-hmm. Um, so mostly what you get are like, you know, tabloid style stories about monsters, which no one can, you know, corroborate and some rumors about illicit goods. But like for the layman, for you and me sitting here, uh, we, we would not really affect our day to day. Uh, aside from like the reality that there are aliens in space and that's the thing that pillman keeps trying to come back to is he's like listen i don't care about us figuring out what this stuff does now we know that there's aliens (laughs) like yeah that's that's a a pretty big thing and i can't get us past that there's no second part of that question um but there isn't much for me of value in like well we gotta find out what this stick does I guess I would like, can we have, can we do both? Can I, can we know that aliens exist? And also can I be using a sweet alien graphics card <laughs> in my computer to run very good games? I bet an aliens, an alien graphics card would also be a smells card. It what? would create scents. Yeah. And pump them into your room. That'd be kind of neat. It would, I mean, it probably wouldn't even need to pump the scents. It would probably just like pump your brain and you'd think you were smelling the scents. Mm. That's See, what that's that. I don't buy that as much because the alien, like the physiology of their brains would probably be way different. Mm, sure, 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 sure. Yeah. Um, well, we'll talk about intelligence in a little bit. The book is. Uh, and alien intelligences. Uh, the book is set in and around the town of Harmont, which is a fictional town in a fictional analog of Canada, maybe. The book is really... Uh, the only thing it is explicit about is that it does not take place in Europe. 
and that it's like vaguely North America. Um, it's probably Canada because they reference someone going to Detroit at some point, like by going south. Okay. But uh, it doesn't mention the Canadian government or anything like that. Um, and overall, there's this shift in the world between like they want to get people out of these zones and then years pass between some of the chapters and they've closed off all emigration but from the zones, from the towns near them. Oh, from the towns near them. Okay. Yes, but yes. Then I assume any towns that were inside them... Oh, they're gone, are baby. ...are just gone. Yeah. yeah. They're, you know, people... If Maybe there are people living in there. There's rumors about it. But <laughs> mostly it's a mess in there. Um, and so our main character, Redrick Red Shuhart... Um, he is a young stalker who spends his nights in the zone, uh, but he also, during the day, works as a lab assistant for the Capital I Institute in Harmont, which is doing like actual research on the stuff that comes out of the zone. He's trying to, uh, like, he was just a freelance stalker, and he decided to get a real job with his illegal skills so that he could like still do illegal stuff on the side. But then okay. maybe like keep the fuzz off him, you know, mm-hmm. like he's like a white hat stalker, I guess, is what I'm saying. <laughs> sure. Um, and he is like an interesting, he's a good guy, but he complains about it a lot. Like he doesn't like the about world. His job or about having to be a good guy? Nah, kind of about other people a lot. Like he uh. is a hard nosed dude who is good at what he does. He gets very frustrated at like newbies in the zone who lose their cool and everybody, you know, go in the zone and you're just like one dumb decision away from killing everybody that you're with. And he doesn't really have time for that. But multiple times in the book, he either attempts to or does save people who've gotten themselves into trouble. Uh, he does care for his family, even well, though... Well, it's sort of a Han Solo type oh. where he'll complain about doing the right thing but he will do it yes 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 and he does not like the man or the system uh so whatever non-ideological thing that that system might correct Uh uh-huh um and his arc in the book is one of like attempting to truly uh embrace his own selfishness and at the last moment maybe he doesn't but he is someone who is like he has a lot of opportunity. He's not a good guy. He does like sleep around on his wife and he does do some like bad stuff, but he does care about people. Um, and by the end of the book, that is tested. Anyway, in the first chapter, it's first person with him and we're going into the zones. Did any of the reviews like mention or attempt to describe the zones, Andrew? No, not really. Okay. No. I, ju- I just was kind of imagining a Chernobyl sort of thing a little bit it's it's kind of it's deliberately weirder than that even though it's of course not reacting to an irradiated zone yeah there is no i guess if i had to like if i had to guess just based on genre tropes that i've experienced that it would look normal but would be full of nasty surprises to people who didn't know what they were doing uh it's a little bit of both, actually. So there's plenty of nasty surprises. There are things called bug traps, which is, uh, and I don't remember the quote-unquote scientific term for them in the book because nobody really uses it, but it's like a, 
a miniature gravitational well. At one point in the book, he looks at a bug trap and there's just a bird that has been flattened into like nothing. Like just a little <laughs> like, you know, pog of a bird at the center of this <laughs> gravitational field um, that they have to avoid uh, near what they call the plague quarter. So called because everyone who lived there got the plague and died. Some sort of plague that made you lose all your skin and bones and stuff. Um, well, that's... So you just be a pile of muscle, I guess? Yeah, it's gross. Um, and ligaments? They're in Only in the plague quarter is a stuff that is like a weird, hairy vegetation that only grows on the antenna on top of the houses. And they tried to pick it up with a helicopter, like a, like a lift from a helicopter, and it started making all the metal hiss and melt. So they left it there. They didn't. No thank you. Okay. There's stuff called hell slime. That's well. That's not pleasant. <laughs> it's just evil goo. At one point in the book, a little bit later, a dude named the Vulture, who's on a mission with Red, has gotten his legs in the hell slime, and it just dissolves his bones. His skin and his muscles are still there, but his bones are gone. Bones are important, and that's Turns out you need bones. Bad. Mm-hmm. Um, there. Somebody went in and they found a thing called a death lamp. Uh, that sounds like the name of a like a late era Stephen King or Dean Koontz <laughs> novel, uh, and it like emits you know fatal radiation of some kind. Uh, but it's not you're not walking around getting like you wouldn't walk around with a Geiger counter to stay safe. Like it's weirder than that um, in a capital W kind of weird fiction way, and so. We get a lot of this information through the first tour that they do through the zone in the book where Red's boss, who's a scientist, he wants to go in. He heard that there is something called a full empty. That's a paradox. Uh, Empty is this artifact that is two copper discs. I guess they're like bigger. They're maybe like they're the size of laser discs and they hover just a few inches apart and you can't pull them apart and you can't push them together you can put your hands through them uh but nobody knows what they do or why they are the way that they are sounds like a cool hanging shelf it does seem like a cool hanging shelf you can put your shot glasses in there yeah you know and uh this guy kirill the scientist he has heard that there is a full empty in there it's got some sort of substance inside of the discs he wants to go get it. So they go in. This is how we get introduced to some of the traps and some of the weird stuff. They're dealing with a new guy whose name is Tender. There's a lot of interesting nicknames. And he is a tender lad who can't really handle it. Is, is he a chicken? He's a bit of a chicken. He loses it right away. Um, they're on like a cool like hovercraft that they call like a hover boot or something. It's just got a lot of cool lingo. And you can see why someone would be like, well, this is just a video game. There's just a lot of stuff to name and interact with and items to pick up and things and ways to die ways to die and lose yes um when you talked about things looking new but like maybe there are traps and stuff there's a parking lot full of trucks and some of the trucks look brand new if not newer than the day the visitation occurred and trucks right next to them are rusted out and falling apart Mm -hmm. and no one knows Mm -hmm. why just because I mean, probably the rusty ones are American trucks. <laughs> Built Ford Tough, am I right? 
Um, and that mission, uh, they get the full empty. Kirill gets some weird gossamer spiderweb stuff on his back, but doesn't know it. Only oh red. Boy. Only Red sees it, and then when he looks again, it seems like it's gone, which is bad news. And then later in that chapter, that dude dies, which really messes Red up. Um, and before that happens, he he encounters an immigration agent who is trying to encourage people to leave these zones, as I alluded to. And this is where it gets a little bit like, what is the point of these zones from like larger than just the book? He's arguing with the immigration agent. He's calling his town. Our town is a hole into the future. <laughs> What's so great about your Europe, the eternal boredom? You work all day, watch TV all night. When that's done, you off to bed with someone breeding delinquents. The strikes, the demonstrations, the never-ending politics. To hell with your Europe. So there's a sense that like the zones have created a purpose beyond mere mundane humanity even though it is steeped in this like kind of rough and tumble stalking work, you know? Um, I don't know. What do you, what do you think it's so far? Do is, have I touched on anything that people have mentioned? I mean, so, okay. So in the reviews that I read, uh, there's one from sfsite.com. Sure. Um, that talks about the difference between, so yeah, one thing that came up over and over again is just how outside of the tradition of like American and British sci-fi this is. And I think it's probably been like absorbed into the sci-fi pantheon at this point, like as, as is evidenced by all the video games and adaptations and stuff. But, um, this review says uh, roadside picnic, like most science fiction from Eastern Europe is very much unlike what one would associate with an American or British science fiction. It isn't heavy or on action or technology, but is much more a, med- a meditation on the sociological implications of advanced technology in the context of the fascist politics and bureaucratically stagnant world that existed behind the iron curtain. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, Natalia on Goodreads in a four star review says, um, when people talk about the quote special feel of Russian literature, I tend to shrug it away as yet another point of confusion, uh, quote Westerners have with anything Slavic. But when I tried to explain the feeling this book evoked in me to a few quote Westerners, I startlingly, startlingly realized that it just feels so essentially Russian may indeed be a valid description that encompasses the soul searching ambiguity, the pursuit of deeper truths shrouded in light sadness the frustrating but yet revealing lack of answers to the clear divide between right and wrong and the heart-shattering scream of soul. So whoa, the heart-shattering scream of soul. Yes, okay, great. There's stuff to talk about. This is good. Okay. Um so in the in the second chapter is where we start to get introduced to more of the bureaucracy stuff. And so this is 5 years later, Red has left working at the institute he and his girlfriend have gotten married. Uh, she has had their daughter who has a mutation where she's covered in fur and they refer to her affectionately as the monkey. Um, oh, no. Now, this is a known thing that people who spend time in the zones, their children tend to be mutated and may or may not be human anymore. And one of the like ongoing sadnesses of the book is the is his relationship to his daughter it's very it's like very short moments and scenes but the fact that he has like brought her into this world and now she is probably no longer human 
and mm-hmm. he can no longer like communicate with her. Um, but the other thing that's happening in the second chapter, so we when get to say no longer human. Did she start human? And yes. When she's, furry well, or? when she's younger, she can talk and she is interesting and interested in them. And then when you meet her later in the book, she is like completely silent and may or may not re- even understand them, but she's just okay. around, um, and ever more, you know, mutated in the classic kind of irradiated fiction way. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the second chapter, we're introduced to more of the like levels of people dealing with the zone aside from just the stalkers and the scientists. So we get the guy I mentioned, the vulture, who is an older OG stalker who's a real dirtbag. Um, he's like from the first generation of stalkers. He is the guy who loses his legs in the hell slime, but he is like, Red, you gotta save me. I'll tell you about the map to lead you to the golden sphere, which grants wishes. And he's like, shut up. I'm just gonna save you. You suck anyway. Um, And that guy later on is running like his own, you know, black market, sending people into the zone for things. Um, At this point, Red is also selling contraband from the zone to these two guys named Raspy and Boney. Um, (laughs) Are they cartoon skeletons? Like, what is they might be? But they wear they they wear suits. They're very respectable. Um, And when he goes to meet them, he like actually, you know, he spent all night in the zone. He had to take uh, Vulture to the butcher, which is their nickname for their cool doctor, who get you know hacks his boneless legs off and he has to go in the morning to meet these guys and he's still like dirty from the zone and he has to go into this fancy building and i pulled this quote here it smelled like fancy tobacco parisian perfumes gleaming leather wallets overstuffed with banknotes expensive uh call girls worth 500 a night and massive gold cigar cases it stank of vulgarity of the foul scum that had grown on the zone gotten rich by the zone fed drank and fattened from the zone and didn't give a damn especially didn't give a damn about what would happen when it gorged itself to its heart's content and all that used to be in the zone settled in the outside world so there's like he's alienated from his labor andrew uh-huh because of the aliens yeah, yeah, sure. Get it? <laughs> you know, I understand. <laughs> and this to me is like, uh, you know, corrupt party bosses or, you know, even just any sort of evil businessman who is taking advantage of a system and taking advantage of people who need to get by. And there's a mix of like Red being exploited for his skills, but also like his interest in the zone in general is being exploited it it isn't just these guys are going to like take stuff and sell it to the highest bidder there's a thing that they want him to get that's clearly going to become a weapon of mass destruction Mm -hmm. um and it isn't there's not a like that we do get to a kind of classic uh MacGuffin with this golden sphere stuff but that's really not till the end of the book a lot of it is red being like what are the ethics of what I'm doing I actually just need to feed my family and take care of my kid I've been spending all this money to build a playground in my neighborhood so the kids will play with my monkey kid like he is really trying to just get by uh mm-hmm even though the system is out to grind him down, he gets arrested multiple times, escapes, and then ultimately turns himself in at the end of that chapter because he knows he stole this, like, you know, WMD of hell slime. Um, 
And then the part that is the most like philosophical, you mentioned a thing that's like, you know, discussing the implications of such an event, which is, I think there, I've read sci-fi like this, but it definitely has a, a unique flavor to it mm-hmm. where the third chapter is the only one not told from Red's perspective. It's about a guy named Richard Noonan who works for the Institute, but he's also an undercover guy for the army, which is trying to stop the flow of illegal goods out of the zone. Uh He's trying to get to the bottom of this whole like vulture contraband situation. And he get, he goes and has like a real drunk lunch with Pillman and they just have a rollicking discussion about the nature of the visitation, about the nature of aliens, about the nature of our relationship to our knowledge about the zone. That's very philosophical, but like they're both getting drunker and drunker and feels both like silly and super important. Um, and I guess that it reminds me, does remind me a little bit of what's the last Russian novel I read for the show was uh, Master and Margarita, I think, by Bulgakov, okay. um, mm-hmm. where there's like a an absurdist or lampooning quality to like the setting in this goofy bar, and they're always yelling at the waitress to get them more drinks, but then <laughs> they're like talking about you know the purpose of human intelligence. And why are we intelligent in a way that animals aren't? We don't know. Maybe that means we just haven't fulfilled the evolutionary imperative of intelligence yet. And you're just like, wait, a, what are we talking about? <laughs> um, it does sound like the, it sounds a little more like a conversation you'd have if you were high than if you were drunk. But a little it bit. It does sound like a conversation you would maybe need to have your consciousness altered in order to really dig into yeah you know it gets to a it's not doing the same thing formally that the movie arrival is doing at all did you see arrival yeah that's the amy Adams yes. one, right um yeah that one but where she's like drawn on the on the, on the glass the etch-a-sketch yes. to talk to the aliens yeah but there there is a quality of like pondering the implications of what of how those aliens communicate and what that must mean about how they view reality and things. Um, this has a little bit of that. So Pillman is the one who gives you the the central metaphor of this book, which I, when I like think about it, having read it, it actually feels like maybe two and a half short stories that are kind of jammed together. It doesn't feel like the scope of a novel novel because I keep remembering it in like little snippets. Um, But Pillman says, uh, think about a picnic, picture a forest, a country road, a meadow, cars drive off the country road into the meadow. A group of young people get out carrying bottles, baskets of food, transistor radios and cameras. They light fires, pitch tents, turn on the music in the morning. They leave. The animals, birds, and insects that watched in horror through the long night creep out from their hiding places. (laughs) And what do they see? Old spark plugs and old filters strewn around, rags, burnt-out bulbs, and a monkey wrench left behind. And, of course, the usual mess, apple cores, candy wrappers, charred remains of the campfire, cans, bottles, somebody's handkerchief, somebody's pen knife, torn newspapers, coins, faded flowers, picked in another meadow. And in this metaphor, humanity are the animals, birds, and bugs. Right. And the aliens are the party goers. 
they came here and had a picnic and we don't even know what a picnic is essentially (laughs) okay um and this conversation doesn't really build to anything it just kind of poses this question that freaks noonan out and pillman's too drunk to really keep going he shares a little bit about um the there's another weirdness where everyone who was in the town when the visitation happened if they move somewhere else on earth like weird bad luck stuff follows them like i mentioned detroit earlier like a dude moved to detroit and all of a sudden there's like tornadoes in detroit and like (laughs) buildings are falling down around him oh so the it it is luck that is big enough and bad enough that other people would probably shun you if they knew you were from yes and and the pillman is like i've studied the statistics of this person moves here and then weird stuff happens to know that like whatever these zones do is beyond our comprehension kind of thing. So again, he it's like the limits of scientific knowledge after this big reveal that there's more out there than we can understand. Okay. Um, and then the, the last part of it um is a trip back into the zone. This is the stuff that feels most explicitly like action, let's call it, for lack of a better word. Um, f- a few more years have passed. Red is really concerned about providing for his family still. His his daughter has gotten worse. Um, his Corpses come back from the grave. They get out of their grave and they walk to the house where they used to live. So, like, his dead dad is just, like, living in his apartment now as a corpse. Can he talk? No, but he can drink. He does drink once. Does it just, like, come out? Like, it's come out of his guts? That is unclear. Uh, The the, the brothers do not elaborate. It's like when the ghosts in Casper try to eat food. (laughs) I hate that. And it just, like, falls on the floor. Such a waste. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's going in purportedly to get this thing called the Golden Sphere that is the closest to a MacGuffin that the book has. Um, he is going with the Vulture's son, Arthur, and the Vulture gave him a map. And this is where you get a lot of the stuff that has probably like bled over into s- stories influenced by this one, where it's like they go through a, a marsh where there's like crazy lightning above them and they have to go into the hell swamp to avoid getting lightninged. And there's random super hot air that washes over them and tries to kill them. And there's stuff that looks like, you know, radiation ghosts, but you can never really see it. Um, And his plan is he's going to get to this golden sphere if it's real. And he's going to wish that his daughter can be normal. Um, And he also knows that there's a trap around the sphere called a meat grinder, which is one of those gravity traps, and he's going to have to sacrifice this kid to the gravity trap uh, to get there, which he does do. Okay. Um, Bye. Bye, I guess. And while this is happening, he's getting more and more um, despondent about the world and about how he's been treated 
Um, he says, I'm done being led by the nose. My whole life I've been dragged by the nose. I kept bragging like an idiot that I do as I like and you bastards would just nod and then you'd wink at each other and lead me by the nose. Uh, he goes on to say, if a man has a job, he's always working for someone else. And so he's finally going to get his um, in a way that I guess he hasn't before. He does sacrifice Arthur to the sphere and the meat grinder, but before Arthur gets ripped apart, he starts yelling wishes for everyone in the world to be happy. Just like everyone gets to be happy. And this really messes with Red's head. And he's like, wait a second. I thought happy was like a zero sum game. Like you take some happy and I get unhappy. And wait, everyone sucks. The human nature is bad. I don't know what to do with this feeling that maybe he had a good idea. And he runs up to the sphere. He yells happiness free for everyone. And then the story ends. So I read several reviews that mentioned the mentioned ending. The ending. Yeah, that's why I wanted and to make sure we covered it. Like not. <laughs> uh, this is from that SF site review again. I must admit that I had to reread the last few pages on several occasions to try and figure out what the specific point the authors were trying to make was, and how the preceding events led logically to the outcome. And to a certain extent, I still don't quote get it. Yeah, The book's last few pages seem to suggest that even an individual reviled by and alienated from a society can take the moral high ground in the face of the indifference or corruption of people and or the state. Up to that point, the story followed a fairly entertaining, straightforward narrative of, uh, of Shuhart's life and adventures, with some consideration of how his interaction with the zone had shaped him and his relationships with others. Then all of a sudden, what one must presume was the deeper meaning and culmination of the previous narrative is packed into the last couple of pages... Well, I have no objections to philosophizing <laughs> about the human condition in a work of science fiction. It does bother me when I just don't get it beyond the immediately obvious. Uh, one other person, Derek on Goodreads in a three-star review said, I still can't decide if the ending was hokey. Huh. Forrest on Goodreads in a five-star review says, like many great books, the meaning of the ending is left up to the reader. Is this novel about triumph over existential angst, or is it about the inevitability of our naivete conquering our logic and good sense? I don't know, but the fact that I am left meditating uh, upon these questions shows clearly that Roadside Picnic was no mere picnic. Whoa! What a good review! Good job, Forrest. Good job, Forrest. So that, I think I am a little close to Forrest in I, I respect for the ending. It It's not quite the end of The Sopranos in terms of the, like, you know, cut to black kind of thing. But it does, I think, when I think about this novel as a short story that is supposed to, like, give me some stuff to think about as opposed to a novel that's going to, like tie stuff up that actually makes me more okay with the ending which okay. which is this like everything that I've even already said about like maybe it's about Red's arc of selfishness and then selflessness like I don't know that that's actually what it's about I think it ends before you know if this you never know that the sphere actually does what it says it's about hope it's about oh, there is an unknowable thing in a world full of people like trying to and potentially already solving most of what's in the world. And -hmm. we're going to go in there and we don't know what's going to happen. And that could be a good thing. Now, a lot of bad stuff has happened. (laughs) But like maybe there's something good in there. And so he's going to get to this sphere. And then in the moment, it's unclear if he's actually 
wishing for what Arthur tried to wish for, or if he is just like parroting back that sentiment because he doesn't know what else to say. Um, you don't know what happens to him. I think there is something, maybe there's a connection between the like unknowability of the aliens and the true nature of the zones with the unknowability of what happiness free for all would actually look like. Like let's presume mm-hmm. that the sphere works. The book doesn't want to make a judgment on what that would be because I think it might not, it, it would be a different thing to different people. Um, and the Strigazis, maybe that's what they want. That's a, that's my most charitable reading of the ending which did feel a little rushed, I would say. <laughs> I do think it was a little rushed. Um, Sometimes you just need to finish a thing. Yeah. Sometimes you just need to be done. Sometimes done is better than perfect. And I and I also think that the there's a, you know, not being a Eastern European or a a Russian reader, I do think that there is a an inherent obliqueness to the world building that definitely feels of apart with other fiction I've read from that part of the world where he is not, you know, the boys are not trying to flesh out the whole backstory. That's deliberate. The, the point of the backstory is that we don't know why and how. (laughs) So Uh like obscuring parts of the reality of this world is like part and parcel with the thematic, you know, implications. Um, And also it's just a, it's a book with a bunch of like sad people who are kind of bad to each other regularly and maybe they could be better. Maybe who knows? Maybe. Um, I will say that if you're looking for a book that has like women in it, um, <laughs> this isn't one of those. Um, uh-huh. Gouda, his Guta, his wife um, is there and she's fine, but she's not there a lot. And the other woman that we meet is the vulture's daughter whose sole purpose in the novel is to be a sex object. You know, I don't think cool. that they are cheering for the people who objectify her, but there's nothing there to counterbalance it. Um, yeah. So, like, that's a point in Annihilation's favor because I believe that that cast is all women um, in that book. So, if you want a book where people go into a zone that isn't just a bunch of dudes, maybe that's where you go. Okay. Andrew, would you go into a zone with me? No. No. Absolutely not. <laughs> you wouldn't be curious? No, absolutely not. I would I would be happy to read articles written by zone explorers, but I'm not going in there. I don't want weird spider web on I don't want regular spider web on me. That's a good point. I don't want the murder spider web on me. That's a good point. You don't want to know what the screams what like, the no, hair plants I mean, are. No, I, w- I will read, I will dive down a Wikipedia hole telling me everything that we know about these things, but I am not going there. I am not going. You don't want to meet the happy ghosts, which is a thing they say is in there? <laughs> no, because anything called a happy ghost is by like definition going to be not, it's, it, the name's going to be ironic. It's not going to be about like actual happy ghosts. It's probably true. Yeah, I did. Now, what did you? Would you go? Like, were you expecting me to need to deliberate a little bit? I wasn't more? gonna go without you, bud. Well, I'm not going. Mm. So <laughs> maybe you can find somebody else, and my feelings won't be hurt. I will like 
you will need to figure out your sort of last will and testament before you go in. That's true. I will need to do that. There's a lot of it just sounds it sounds dangerous. Yeah, though. you have to do a lot of crawling in the zone, which I really don't that does not appeal to me. Yeah, I get pretty claustrophobic. I don't like just I'm good. Okay. I'm good out here. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um if folks have been to the zone and want to tell us what happened, they can send us an email at overduepod at gmail.com. Or hit us up online, social media, Twitter and Facebook.com slash OverduePod. Thanks to Jess, Tessa, Teresa, Jacob, Katie, Lucas, Rin, Nick, not Rick, Nick, Jeremy, <laughs> Sydney, Stephanie, Denise, Aaron, and Gloria, and many more for reaching out in the past week. Speaking of Nick, Nick Larangis composed our theme song. Thank you, Nick. Andrew, thanks for listening to me tell you about this book. Of course. If folks I mean, I'll, I will listen to you tell me about a book. I just am not going into that zone with you. <laughs> If folks want to know more about our book zone, where should they go? They should go to OverduePodcast.com, which is our internet website. Up there, we have links to Apple Podcasts, to Google, to our RSS feed. We are on Spotify and Stitcher and pretty much anywhere else you can find fine podcasts. Um, Also up there, we have a new listener page with episodes that we think went pretty well that you should listen to. If you are new to the show, I know a lot of people have found us during quarantine times and are finding us to be sort of an entertaining distraction, which I, I think is the highest compliment yep. you could pay somebody right now. Yep. Um, I will be updating our schedule, which we also keep on the website. We did post it this week for September. Um, you just listened to our first episode, Roadside Picnic by Arcadian Boris Tukotsky. Next week, Andrew is reading The Yiddish Policeman's Union by Michael Shabam. Then how much Chabon is pronounced Chabon. <laughs> I Michael Chabon. I said Chabon for so long and I don't think that that's right. Um, I, I was I, I was going to make a point of figuring out how you actually pronounce okay. it before we do the episode Great. next week. Um, how Chabon. much I will then be reading. <laughs> it sounds like you're just eating apples over there like cartoon <laughs> apples. <laughs> um, how much of these hills is gold by Sipan Zhang will be after that. And then I can't wait to find out how much I think I assume the book is going to answer the question by the end. Yeah, it's going to tell me exactly how much of the hills is gold. And then, you know, closing out the the month with another question. Why the last man by Brian K. Vaughn and Pia Guerra will be uh, the end of the month. And then we will also have our next um, mashup of Genie Babies episodes for you on the main feed. Find out more about Genie Baby's 1001 Nights at patreon.com slash pod if you want to get those episodes early. Okay. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening to our show. Uh, don't go into any zones. If you Maybe the cool zone. Go into the cool zone. Mm, if there is a cool zone. Hmm. But see, an uncool zone would, that's exactly what an uncool cool zone would say, was, oh, I'm the cool zone. Come into me and chill, you know? Come into me, the zone would say. I don't think you could trust any of these zones. Okay, everybody, until we talk to you next time, please try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.